a very good day to all our listeners. It will indeed be another double podcast today. So that's episodes 1626 and 1627 of our podcast subscription series on the 20th of January 2023. And I'm going to start today because quite often um, when we have a sort of uh, significant interest when Zoltan Pazar comes out with a statement. Now, he came out with comments. He was talking in a broader sense about challenges to the dollar and effectively, by extension, US hegemony. And he lists all the things and all the things we've discussed in recent times. But he makes a reference to central bank digital currencies. And as I keep saying, there's an awful lot of bad press about them as though somehow it links to totalitarianism and control of humanity. And most of this, as I've said before, comes out the back end of statements regarding the digital yuan. Now, the intention of the global south is to introduce central bank digital currencies, and there's more and more of them being developed as a mechanism to accelerate the development of a non-SWIFT financial system. The other thing is with central bank digital currencies, they don't necessarily have to be what we might term islands, in the sense that central bank digital currencies can, can interact with other central bank digital currencies. They can be very easily linked together, creating an alternative to SWIFT. Now, Pozar makes the, the correct statement in saying, look, a CBD network could allow, I'm saying, Global South foreign exchange dealers to intermediate, intermediate currency flows between local banking systems, completely independent of the US dollar and SWIFT. And he says this is by the virtue of the fact they have currency swaps. And what do we keep seeing? For example, China is implementing currency swaps with a whole broad range of nations and not just in the global south. It's also happened with nations we might perceive to be called the West. And he therefore also then talks about all the nations with current account surpluses, which is, of course, China. He highlights China, Russia and Saudi Arabia. They're at record highs. And he makes the point, and we've said this many times ourselves, that the surpluses are not being recycled into to traditional reserve assets, principally like US treasuries. Absolutely not. And this has been the big point largely since 2015 to varying degrees. So he makes the point, look, and we, we've said this many times, and he's correct, we're seeing more demand for gold. And he makes reference to China's recent purchases, which is true, and it's not exclusively China by any stretch of the imagination. There are many other central banks buying up gold. He also makes references to commodities, and this has been a big play for the last year or two particularly. And he makes reference, as we said, to Saudi Arabia's planned investments in mining interest. Absolutely correct. And he talks about geopolitical investments and the funding of the Belt Road Initiative, and helping, he says, allies and neighbours, meaning friendly nations, in, for example, Turkey, Egypt, or Pakistan. And we this is one of the principal reasons why, for years, we've spoken about the Belt and Road Initiative, what its intention was. It wasn't just about recycling profits, or, uh, for, or obviously, in this case, trade, um, 
surpluses, but also to build the infrastructure and allow these countries to be a functioning member of a future paradigm shift outside the dollar, of course, by extension, the multipolar world. He also makes the point that leftover surpluses are being increasingly held in bank deposits in liquid form to retain much needed options in the changing world. Absolutely. So the idea like it has been for a long time that if you had any surpluses, you bought a load of US treasuries and gave the United States a bunch of free money. Those days are over. We've made this point many times previously and it's absolutely crystal clear now that that's the case. As he rightly also points out, if less trade is invoiced in US dollars and there was a dwindling recycling of dollar surpluses into traditional reserve assets such as US treasuries, clearly and correctly the exorbitant privilege that the dollar holds, or I would contest did hold, as the international reserve currency could be under assault. Well, I think it's more not a question of could be, it is under assault. And it comes back to my long-standing point that the United States is effectively in a proxy war with Russia and Ukraine and wants to have a proxy war with China over Taiwan for precisely this reason, because it's always about the defense of the dollar. It's a matter of national security at all costs, hence the, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and obviously subsequent execution and the execution of, of Gaddafi. It's the same principle why we have regime change, etc., etc., because it's everything is about the dollar, because without dollar hegemony, the United States is indeed this naked emperor. Now, it's interesting to see the response from a lot of commentators and people in the West who look at Pozor's statement and go, I don't even understand this, it makes no sense, it's nonsense, it can't happen. Well, I'm sorry to say, from my perspective, that is just displaying a bit of arrogance because, you know, it's swift, it's the dollar, it'll always be here. It's also a bit of ignorance. And not least in the fact, do they not already understand what China and Russia are doing? I mean, their trade's now $200 billion annually equivalent. Do they not understand that that is all being conducted effectively in non-dollar terms? It's operating in a financial system outside the dollar. And if you can do 200 billion, you can do 2 trillion. You can do 6 trillion. The problem isn't the platform in any way, shape, or form. It's just you know, a, a process of scalability and it's very easy to implement. I think there's a lot of misconceptions that these new financial platforms are very complicated to, to implement. The actual infrastructure and architecture is very simple. Okay, you might have to decide how you're going to implement this and how does this work with bricks in the future, and it adds some complexity. But in principle, the technology is very simple. It's very scalable. So if China and Russia can do it, why can't the rest of the global south do it? And if you collectively add up all the trade that goes on between in the global south, all of a sudden the dollar is most certainly no longer a world reserve currency. And you can in future get nations in the global south trading with, say, for example, Europe and say, well, we're not going to trade in the dollar or the euro with you. You either trade in, in this central bank digital currency or you don't. And the principle of central bank digital currencies is for international trade. It's wholesale transactions, not retail transactions now. 
I will concede that in the West there might be an idea that we can implement central bank digital currencies for some different purpose, although at this point there's no indication of that, and frankly it wouldn't change anything anyway. You're not going to magically resolve a problem by going, well, we're not using this dollar, but now we've got a, a, a US dollar central bank digital currency. It doesn't change anything. It, it doesn't actually in any way, shape or form revolutionize the Western financial system. So as ever, we have to be a little bit careful how we interpret things. But from the global south's perspective, it's absolutely clear how they intend to roll this out and and Zoltan's correct in his assessment, and we've, we've discussed this before, and I'm not just using it to say, well, here you go, here's someone else who agrees with us, because I'm happy to stand on, on my own two feet and, and accept the criticism and flack we've had for years about being apparently completely wrong. I don't mind about that. But what I'm highlighting is, is his understanding what is actually going on and the purpose of it. And that is hugely encouraging, given that he works in a Western bank, because I don't believe his statements haven't gone unnoticed in other banks, in, in other financial institutions, in governments. People will be starting to look at this and go, hang on, is this what's really happening? Because even though we spent years trying to explain to people, including Western governments and financial institutions, what's going on, they're totally ignorant. They didn't listen. They laughed, they thought it was ridiculous, and there are still people who think that, but increasingly, people, I wouldn't call them in positions of authority and responsibility, because they're not, but, the, but increasingly those people who need to hear this and understand it are beginning to take this on board, and that is why we're seeing things like an escalator, an attempt to escalate the Ukraine war, and the intention in the Ukraine war was very clear wasn't about protecting Ukraine. The Americans let slip back in March, April last year. This was about containing and destroying Russia. And it's very self-evident. That's all the United States is interested in. Because they think once they've gone, multipolarity will die with the Russians. And they're now increasingly starting to realize Russia isn't capitulating. So they'll probably start trying to, to nibble away at the, the periphery of China and Taiwan. And we've seen evidence of that in recent months. But I don't want to sort of rehash what we've already said. And now we come on to small, small snippets about the issue of gold. Now, there's an organization called Han ETF. And they surveyed 100 European and UK wealth fund managers. And this was sort of back end of last year. And nearly 90% of respondents said they intended to increase their exposure to gold in 2023. Now, how what they mean by that is, are they going to buy physical gold? Probably not. They'll buy ETFs, of course. I, maybe some will buy gold, physical gold. The other thing that the survey showed that 83% of these uh, wealth fund managers expected central banks to continue buying gold in 2023. And of course, along with central bank demand, wealth fund managers said that gold remains an attractive inflation hedge and a protection against further equity market volatility and risk. Absolutely, it's interesting they didn't particularly focus on interest rates, which is good to see because I really, for me, see a bit of naivety with people going, well, 
and we've said this before, why would you buy gold? Because we have, look at rising real rates. So that's not a reason to own gold because gold's a neutral asset. You don't buy gold as an investment. You buy it as a protection against all the problems that we see now. Another small point with regards to gold, the Royal Mint in the UK said that gold bullion sales actually increased 25% in 2022 compared to 2021, which was also a record year. And at the same time, they said silver demand increased 29% from the previous year, meaning, of course, the same 2022 compared to 2021. The Royal Mint also said there was an increase in new investors taking an interest in physical gold because the number of new customers increased by 5% last year. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, and I don't know how many customers there are, but for me, that is quite a significant growth. They also said on a month-by-month basis, the Mint also noted March was the busiest month for gold sales. That's probably just on the back, obviously, of the start of the Ukraine war. And the Mint also saw a demand that increased in September and October. And with regards to 2023, the Royal Mint said, look, we've still got a robust start to the year. And I think this is interesting. Now, I know people who work in in the gold sector in, in various capacities, and it's a bit of a mixed response with regards to institutional high net worth individuals' interest. But this survey kind of suggests that In fact, in some quarters, we are starting to see more interest as ever. I don't get bogged down or focused too much on the gold price. Yes, we've seen it obviously um, head above $1,900 an ounce. Silver still having this battle at 24, which I've attributed months ago to a bit of a problem with the derivatives market. And 24 is a problem. At some point, that will break and they will have to do something to resolve why it's a problem at 24. We did for a time have this problem at 1800 uh, announcing gold and it got resolved and I expect it will also get resolved in silver but it's interesting for the Royal Mint to say there's this big surge in gold and silver bullion and therefore it also ties in with what I understand to be an increased demand. Again we must never get frustrated particularly with this complete divergence between physical buying and and paper markets as I've said eventually paper markets will eviscerate I've stand by that but I always said now going on 10 years ago it won't happen immediately but at some point it will do and maybe 2023 is the year when that happens and then we'll start to see a better indication of true price discovery And now I'm going to move on to the East Africa community. Now, we have discussed this before, uh, but there's been an update on this. Because there's a single currency still in the works for the East African community, the EAC. And there's a belief, and this was from the bloc's Secretary General, Mahuki, who came out and said, well, we think it could be achievable in the next three or four years. Now... This was on the back of the fact, not that long ago, they said the project, the deadline was 2024. I still think it can be done sooner, and I'm expecting it to be sooner. I'm not saying that because I want it to be. I think it will happen. Because in 2023, they said we're going to finalise where we will have the East African Monetary Institution. 
the constitution that will create a roadmap for having one currency, and then it'll be a common currency. Okay, whether it's three, four years, two years, doesn't isn't really uh, the the issue here. As I said, the initial deadline was 2024, but then it apparently got moved back to 2031, which is eight years away. But now, no, 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 that's not the case. It's being moved back into three, four years, and I expect it to be sooner. Now, the reasons for this are very obvious. The single currency will make business and movement of people within the region easier. Okay, people go, hang on, I'm not very happy about this. It sounds like the euro. It won't be the euro, but it's in line with the goal to make the region borderless. Okay, so people can move and trade freely, as envisaged in this common market protocol. Now, that's been in force since 2010. And that was the goal of the creation of a common currency, and they said a full political federation. Now, obviously, this is causing alarm bells in the West. They don't like the look of this because they don't like nations in Africa pooling resources, allowing people to move freely, because that might help the African pole in the multipolar world develop a lot quicker. But the value of trade between the member states was about $9.5 billion in 2022, go back sort of three years it was about seven billion so there is growth and it's all proportion you know we we don't want to so much look at the figures but that's about a 35 percent growth roughly now the eac is also going to send a delegation to somalia with the intention of letting them join the block i think that might be a bit of a bit of a challenge because somalia for me is not a particularly stable country but what's interesting is representatives of somalia applied for membership over 10 years ago. So maybe there is some reason and cautious optimism that some of the problems at least have been resolved. Now, what is this block? It was established in 2000, and it consists of Congo, Tanzania, Kenya, Burundi, Rwanda, South Sudan, and Uganda. And since 2008, the block has been part of a common free trade area with the South Southern African Development Community and the Common Market for Eastern and Southern Africa. Now, there's obviously a question, okay, if we have a common currency, is this going to be at some point backed by commodities? Is it going to be become a, a, a currency that actually has some stability? And of course, that will have to happen. And I expect it will happen. And it might be that this common currency becomes another so-called central bank digital currency for want of a better description we have to not get too bogged down in terminology because frankly it doesn't matter but the real but in reality this is something that's becoming more and more sharply into focus and we're starting to see some of these developments coming about i'm pleased to see in the african continent i really look forward in years to come to seeing these developments because i think when africa achieves its true potential, it will astonish the rest of the world. There are huge problems to get there, not least just economic, financial, societal problems, problems with governments, etc. But they're all potentially resolvable. We shouldn't live in a world where we feel that these things can't happen because it's Africa. It can happen, and in some senses, to varying degrees, and I would argue to a, a greater degree, a lot of their problems is because of Western interference. The West trying to put puppet leaders in countries. And these leaders, of course, have got no interest in, in doing anything that for the betterment of the people of the African nations and the African continent.
And now we're going to move on to Venezuela. <laughs> because all of a sudden, apart from the absolute stupidity that the United States no longer recognizes Guaido, so by implication they must recognize Maduro, but they're not saying that, he came out and made a statement that we need a new international bloc involving Latin America and Caribbean countries that have closer ties, surprise, surprise, to Russia and China. he recently spoken with the presidents of Brazil, Colombia and Argentina about forming a new regional organization so they can unite efforts in Latin America and the Caribbean to become a more powerful block of political forces, of economic power, that allows them to be another one of these poles. As I said, the the multipolar world isn't one block or even many blocks in many different alliances, and Venezuela could be in some other block. So it's not this simplistic idea. We just lump nations in blocks. It's entirely likely eventually South Americans will have a block, and Venezuela can be part of Latin America and Caribbean, which is another block, just to give you an, uh, some illustration of what we expect to see. Of course, surprise, surprise, Maduro said the block would create new note poles of power, will be allied to Russia and China, who he referred to as elder brothers. So meaning, you know, they're mature in this multipolar world and we need to, to work with them. But this is another example of this multipolar and multicentric world. He said for this to arrive, that we need a united and advanced Latin American and Caribbean bloc. And he said Moscow and Beijing has also said that China and Russia are promoting together the multipolar world, of course, and doesn't recognize unipolar hegemony. Absolutely not. But this is another one of these situations where if these nations, and they do have differences, they do have politi internal political problems, they do have economic financial problems, but if they realize that they pull their resources and, and pull their capabilities, they can be a lot stronger. And if we build these poles all over the world, as I've said before, it gives a lot more stability regionally, internationally, and it prevents the likelihood of seeing any future hegemonic power in decades to come. Obviously, we don't have a crystal ball, and none of us will be here in a hundred years to know what might unfold then. But at the moment, that's exactly where we ought to be and we want to be because the world has finally realized, certainly in the global south, that an hegemonic power is a disaster because it doesn't benefit anyone but the hegemonic power, of course. And now we come on to Saudi Arabia. Now, we said at the time when Xi Jinping had the visit to Riyadh and he sat there in a very public forum and talked about, you know, we'd be interested in, in trading uh, in oil terms with the Saudis in the Petro Yuan. And we said it was just a way of saying, this is what we're already intending doing, but we're just making the point publicly, we're, we're doing it. But we'll couch it in a way that takes a bit of the heat off the Saudis. Well, lo and behold, a few days ago, the Saudis have come out and publicly said, so they're now quite happy to take some of the flack and the heat from, from the United States and whoever else, that it's open to discussions about trades in currencies other than the US dollar. And we said years ago, this is exactly what would happen. And here we are. And they say, look, you know, we have no issues with discussing how we settle our trade arrangements, whether it's in the US dollar, for example, of course, or the euro or the Saudi real. 
didn't make any reference to the yuan, but that's deliberately and intentional to try and steer anybody thinking, hang on, if they say the yuan, that might mean, oh, the petro yuan's born. And, you know, and the West and the United States is having an aneurysm about this. But as he said, we're not waving away or ruling out any discussion note that will help improve trade around the world. Now, obviously, the point is, and we know this in terms of bolstering international ties, the world's largest oil exporter, okay, it sort of fluctuates in times with the United States, but less so, and, and Russia. They want to strengthen its relations with trade partners, including China, as we know, when Xi Jinping uh, visited Riyadh in December, the two countries wanted to boost coordination on energy policy, exploration relating to mining. And Xi said that China would want to make these efforts to buy more oil from the Middle East, not just Saudi Arabia, and to settle that trade in the yuan. Now, the one sort of caveat that the, the, the Saudis came out with during this interview which was uh, in, actually in an interview in Davos, where they said, we enjoy a very strategic relationship with China, and we enjoy that same strategic relations with other nations, and we want to develop that with Europe and other countries who are willing and able to work with us. Saudi Arabia is also, of course, working with multilateral institutions to provide support to Pakistan. We know this, Turkey and Egypt. And, and and any other nation that it feels it can assist and it perceives to be vulnerable. And if it's vulnerable, it means that is particularly at risk from internal disruption and internal disruption can create wider disruption, of course. They said, we're heavily investing in those countries, meaning Turkey, Pakistan and Egypt, and we'll continue to look for opportunities because we want to bring stability. So the country is already looking to invest $10 billion in Pakistan, extending the term of a $3 billion deposit to boost its foreign currency reserves late last year. Does that include, of course, the yuan? And Saudi is now exploring the possibility of increasing those amounts. So again, this feeds into this. We might be taking our dollar reserves. We're not buying U.S. treasuries. We're going to go and invest in other countries like Pakistan and also boost our foreign currency reserves instead of holding treasuries, we hold these currencies now. For example, the UN. They said we're, even pro we're pro uh, providing even oil and derivatives to support their energy needs, meaning these countries. So there is a lot of efforts, uh, and, and, and they want to, to move forward. So in essence, they're embracing multipolarity. It also said, look, we're going to work with the World Bank and other institutions and, and explain, look, there are far better ways to, to support nations like Pakistan. Again, it's one of those things with these institutions created by the United States, effectively. You're either going to modernize, you're either going to change, or you're going to die. It's as simple as that. And the, I think the other interesting thing is when it talked about Egypt, they went, look, we're providing support and we'll continue to do so. But as we know, Russia is with Egypt, China is with Egypt. And of course, it's not directly through just grants or deposits or loans, it's through investment. Again, it's one of those situations where the Saudis have learned, we can take our, our current account surplus and we can invest it in parts of the world and get a return on it. 
And why would we not do that? That's good for us. It's good for, for uh, international relations. It's good for bilateral, multilateral relations. And who cares about the United States anymore? We're not propping them up, giving them a bunch of free dollars so they can go around the world destabilizing our neighbors, trying to destabilize us because we don't agree with, with their policy decisions. And this is the big mind shift change, and Saudi Arabia has highlighted that rather eloquently. But again, it comes back to this point. I'm no fan of Saudi Arabia's human rights record. Absolutely not. And But at the end of the day, you, it's far better that Saudi Arabia cooperates in the world and it actually tries to do things that are positive with its neighbors. And over time, those other issues can get dealt with. It's just one step at a time. But by doing this, if Saudi Arabia becomes a more reliable partner, and we know it's had links to terrorism in the Middle East, if it turns its back on that, that's a positive. That's the way the world has to think and function in the future and have a far more adult way of assessing where we are in the future rather than this very zero-sum game mentality, which is childish, arrogant, ignorant, and extremely dangerous potentially. And now we come on to Iran and Russia. And again, it's one of those situations we've talked about this. We talked about asset-backed cryptocurrencies, gold-backed cryptocurrencies, and cryptocurrencies means many things. Well, what's the central bank of Iran doing? It's now cooperating with the Russian government to jointly issue a new cryptocurrency, surprise, surprise, backed by gold. Iran is working with Russia, they said, to create this token of the Persian Gulf region that would serve as a payment method note again in foreign trade. The token is projected to be issued in the form of a stable coin backed by gold. Why? Again, to enable cross-border transactions instead of using currencies like the US dollar, and even for that matter, the Russian ruble or the Iranian rial. Now, Obviously, there's also the potential this cryptocurrency could operate in special economic zones where, you know, of course, Russia started to accept Iranian cargo shipments. That's Astrakhan. So there are many ways and flexible approaches to how this is implemented. Now, of course, the thing people will look at in this and go, how is this possible? But what have we said on many occasions? Iran has enormous gold reserves as well as Russia having enormous gold reserves. So it's perfectly feasible for them to both do this. And, of course, the issue is that any joint stable project, and Russia said this, would only be possible once the digital asset market is fully regulated in Russia. Now, the lower house of the parliament in, has once again promised to start regulating crypto transactions in this year. But again, let's be absolutely clear about this. This has nothing to do with Bitcoin because every time I see people uh, mentioning this or there's any reference to it, oh, Russia's accepting Bitcoin, Iran's accepting Bitcoin or any other nation. That is absolutely not true. That is people just trying to, to give the impression that sovereign nations are willing to utilize Bitcoin in international trade. Now, Iran and Russia and China and nations like that will never, ever, utilize bitcoin for very obvious reasons i'm not talking about the technology or or the, the 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 inability to roll out that kind of payment mechanism internationally it's just hello hang on 
we've just tried to escape from, from the clutches of US hegemony and the US dollar, and we're going to roll out something we have no visibility of, no control over, we're absolutely not going to utilize that because, again, they would perceive that as extremely dangerous to their own uh, interests, and absolutely. And that's not just trying to take a, a stab at Bitcoin about this. It's just look at the logic of it. It's absolutely the case. So I think it's worth also noting that Iran and Russia are obviously countries that banned their residents from using Bitcoin and stable coins like Tether for payments. And what's worth noting, of course, Iran and Russia have been actively working to adopt a cryptocurrency as a tool for foreign trade. If we go back to August 2022, the Iranian Industry, Mines and Trade Ministry approved the use of cryptocurrencies note for imports into the country because of, surprise, surprise, these decades of international trade sanctions. And it's worth noting as well, Iran placed its first international import order using $10 million equivalent of crypto. The Bank of Russia, Russia's central bank, has agreed to allow crypto in foreign trade to mitigate the impact of international sanctions. Again, not Bitcoin. And frankly, the regulator never clarified which cryptocurrencies will be used for transactions. Well, this stablecoin cryptocurrency uh, backed by gold between Iran and Russia would clearly fit the mold, clearly fit what they're prepared to allow to mitigate the impact of international transactions. But again, this is one of those things where there's two nations, they're using a cryptocurrency, gold-backed, and who knows what it'd be called, but it doesn't stop other nations in the future saying, hang on, we'd like to use that, or maybe we can trade with you around utilising that currency. Uh, and this, or, you know, hang on, Russia, you're utilising that currency. Maybe we can trade with you with that. And maybe this will morph into something the SCO uses. Or if Iran, when Iran joins BRICS, maybe they'll adopt this. I'm not saying they will with BRICS, but you get the point. It's scalable, and therefore on that basis, it becomes very interesting aside from its use in bilateral trade between the Russians and the Iranians. And talking of Iran, uh, it's worth noting that Iran and Qatar want to sign a monetary pact to facilitate bilateral banking ties. The, the senior bankers of the two countries met in Doha, which is obviously the capital of Qatar, to discuss increased cooperation between the regional lenders. So they're on track to meet the targets set in bilateral relations. But obviously, if you sign this bilateral monetary agreement and engaging other multilateral pacts, it would help the two countries clearly boost ties again outside the dollar. And again, this idea that de-dollarization isn't happening and it doesn't matter, of course, again, is nonsense because Qatar can take dollar reserves and go, hang on, well, we're not going to buy treasuries. We're going to, we're going to set up some monetary pact and we're going to work with the Iranians. This diverts a huge amount of, of what the United States' exorbitant privilege it once had is disintegrating rapidly. Of course, Qatar, from their perspective, says, look, banking relations with Iran is really important in terms of its policies and decision-making because cooperation between the banks in the two countries is hugely beneficial. And part of this have come about because 
We recall when Qatar came under the economic blockade by countries led by Saudi Arabia, that Iran and Qatar actually worked then to expand political and economic relations since that point in 2017. It seems a long time ago and long since forgotten, but it was quite a sort of geopolitical hot potato at the time. But this again is include this inclusion of Iran into the wider Gulf region and therefore Again, extremely important, and just another one of many developments that are ongoing. And finally, we talk about things we wanted to discuss. This goes back quite a long way last year. And I've said a couple of times, uh, sort of this year, that we need to discuss a proposal Indonesia had because it is actually telegraphing how commodities markets can change and you know we've talked about the petro yuan we've talked about shanghai gold exchange as examples about opec plus with russia entering opec and indonesia is now looking and this is ongoing the establishment of what you might call an opec type structure for nickel and other key battery metals highlighting they say the geopolitical confidence of nations note that are rich in resources need needed to make electric cars okay it's electric cars no big fan of them but that's not the point they said jakarta was looking at mechanisms similar to that utilized by opec that could be employed in the supply of metals central to this energy transition so what's the merit of creating an opec type structure uh you know they say will help with predictability for investors and consumers so they're studying this idea of having a similar kind of governance structure with regards to minerals, so that's not just nickel, but also cobalt and manganese. Why does they want to do this? Well, ironically, Indonesia is the world's largest nickel producer, creates about 38 to 40% of globally refined supply. It actually holds a quarter of the world reserves of nickel. And of course, when it asked whether it contacted other large nickel producers about this idea, they said it was still formulating a structure that it could propose. So any attempts to form this OPEC plus kind of structure to uh, control global prices for nickel, yeah, it's not going to be straightforward. We also know Russia supplies about 20% of high purity nickel used in batteries. Okay, Canada and Australia are also big producers. Indonesia expected to be the biggest source of growth in the years to come, but if you add Indonesia and Russia together and it's 60% of the market and you might get some other players coming on board it might end up being 70% who knows maybe higher the interesting point would be is at what point does Indonesia go hang on well we've got the right to do this the Russians are on board like Russia moved into OPEC plus they start to go hang on we're going to price nickel in these terms and it'll be backed by this currency and all of a sudden commodities markets start shifting away from the traditional kind of spot price in dollars to something entirely different i think what's also worth noting surprise surprise is that uh, indonesia relies on countries uh, such as china uh, which is Qingzhan, which is the world's largest stainless steel producer and brazil's veil obviously to extract nickel the question is, is the country's capabilities to supply battery-grade nickel? 
is feasible of course much of its output though is low purity material used in stainless steel and further processing facilities to turn it into battery material are needed hence why the support internationally Jakarta is also planning taxes on exports of intermediate nickel products so they want to encourage the development of a full supply chain the question of course is despite it's got an awful lot of uh, mineral richness its role in supplying western automakers with nickel is under threat from the fact that large amounts of production they say are chinese control this is the west and carbon intensive because of reliance on carbon uh, coal-fired power generation obviously chinese has doubled their investment in the country in the first half of what a surprise 2022 to over three and a half billion dollars compared with the same period last year Obviously, any OPEC-style cartel for battery metals is, is going to drive fear into the West. The argument is, well, the West won't want to invest in Indonesia's nickel sector, but so what? I mean, China will step in. They already have in 2022. And therefore, this is this big change, and this is where you start to see with a country like Indonesia, who goes, well, we're the biggest individual producer, Okay, we've got some issues with the whole supply chain issue, but we're going to start to want to kind of have a voice in these markets and price things accordingly. And the West is sat there rather like OPEC Plus going, well, it's out of our control now. I think what's also interesting is there is discussions about this happening between Chile, Argentina and Bolivia, forming some kind of, again, OPEC-type group to control global supply and pricing of lithium and we'll come in because we're up on time i'll discuss a what you might term a positive development in the u.s regarding lithium in the next podcast or sometime next week anyway but this is significant it's not unexpected it's what we've anticipated and discussed previously that these that we would start to see challenges to traditional commodities markets and absolutely those who produce most of the commodities should have a right in terms of pricing, in terms of global supply and how the market is, is uh, run, as opposed to the West who tries to dictate everything when by right it has no authority or justification as we know for doing so. And with that, we end today's double podcast. Thank you very much for listening, for all your ongoing support. Uh, which is greatly appreciated. Have a wonderful weekend. And of course, we'll catch you next week. And with that, I'll say goodbye.